Hey, welcome to All Things Billy. It's me, your host, Michael Anthony Judicici. And uh, no interviews today. Today we're going to talk about something else, but there are more interviews coming. And I hope you've enjoyed them. Based on the listener count, it seems you do like guests. <laughs> you like hearing other people talk rather than me, uh, which is fine. <clears throat> That's cool. I can just be the host. Um, and I am endeavoring to set up uh, some additional interviews for people that have uh, other viewpoints about uh, Billy the Kid, Brushy Bill Roberts, Lincoln County War, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll bring those to you uh, as uh, as we can. Um, but today I want to talk to you about a series of very strange, I'll call them coincidences, although there's at least one that is not a coincidence. It's just a very odd episode. But these happened during the uh, succession of the book series that I'm writing called Back to Billy. Now, I promise you, if you haven't tuned out already, this is not going to be a commercial for my books. Okay, if you want them, you can look in the notes and figure out where to buy them. Um, but I, I do want to talk to you a little bit about writing them because some very, very weird things happened in succession uh, and kind of continue to happen right up until a couple days ago. So in order to do that, I need to give you a little background on the Back to Billy series. Uh, I wrote the uh, first book. Well, Back to Billy actually uh, was a concept I had for a book years ago. And then uh, we pulled it out, dusted it off for a short film competition, which we didn't win, but we decided to make a short film anyway, which became long enough to make a pilot episode, which, as I probably mentioned, will be up on YouTube at some point once we get a couple things edited. And uh, then went forward and wrote a bunch more episodes, which would never got made. And then... I decided to write a feature film script. Uh, someone suggested, hey, why don't you just write a book? Um, because then you can adapt that into the script, but at least you'll have the whole story. So um, I, I did both, actually. I started writing the book and then stopped. And then I went and wrote the feature film script. Uh, at some point during that process, I forwarded that to, I got, a, I got involved with a producer from Denver or somewhere near Denver and Colorado. And he read it and he liked it. And he said, Hey, you know, yeah, pretty good. I, you know, I'd like to be involved if you're going to move forward with this thing. And, but he said, but wait a minute. I, the, the end is incomplete for me. I want to know what happened to Billy. And I want to know what happened to Carl Farber, who's the, uh, the uh, protagonist or antagonist. I want to know what happened to Lily. Like you left these things open in this big scene at the end, but you didn't really tell us what happened afterward. And I thought about that. And I, and you know, for me, for my writing style, I, I think, you know, I like the viewer or the reader to use their own imagination and fill in some of the blanks. I don't want to have to tell you every single thing that happened. But I thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And then at some point when COVID hit, I said, all right, well, I left the book. I'm going to go back to it and see if I can finish. First fictional book. And Back to Billy is a book about 
my my uh, anti-hero's name is Martin Teebs. He's a middling quality control manager in an ad agency from Waldwick, New Jersey. Waldwick is in Bergen County, and it uh, and it's a little, you know, kind of nowhere town. Nice middle class, maybe upper middle class town, about a mile square. I've never lived in Waldwick. I probably drove through it at some point, but I, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, there's nothing that stands out. It just it was a name that popped into my head because I'm originally from New Jersey. <clears throat> and Martin becomes fascinated with the story of Billy the Kid after watching the movie Young Guns. Sound familiar, probably like many of us. Um, and then he's got to read all the books and see all the movies and watch the documentaries and nothing will satisfy him. Nothing other than having to go to Lincoln, New Mexico. And by winning two airplane tickets in a contest at work, he does decide to go and take his wife, Lily. And when he gets there, he slips back in time to the 1878 uh, during the very beginnings of the Lincoln County War. And all of a sudden, he's thrust into all this action. But the, the biggest shocker or two biggest shockers is when he gets back in time, everybody already knows him, including Billy the Kid, who's a good friend of his. And Rosita Luna, the Belle of Lincoln, knows him and is in, madly in love with him. And he's married in modern day. He knows nothing about this. So it really throws him sideways. So anyway, that's the concept of the first book. And the first book is a story unto itself. It has a complete story arc. It has an ending. Yes, it doesn't spell out what happens exactly to every single character, but, but it's a complete story. And you could get to the end and go, okay, I liked it or I hated it or whatever, and but I got it. And then something happened when I finished that. I thought about that producer. I remember his first name started with a D, odd name, not odd, just different. Um, and anyway, I, uh, I thought about it and I thought, mm, you know what, maybe I did leave too much open there. And so... I don't know, a few weeks, maybe a month later, I thought, no, I'm going to write the next part of it. And the second book in the series would be what's called a prequel, because although Martin's life has progressed forward, he's gotten older in modern day, when he winds up going back in time, he goes back to 1877, before the Lincoln County War started. And as such, uh, these people don't even know him. So what, when he first went there, it was in 1878, and they knew him. Now he's going back to the time before he knew them, and now he's going to see how these relationships form or don't. And uh, so I finished that, but I knew when I started writing that book that that this book would be, or that this would be a trilogy. There would be three, because there had to be a sequel. There had to be an ending. You have this great love affair between Martin and the most beautiful woman in all of New Mexico. You have your best buddy being, you know, Billy the Kid, who's involved in the Lincoln County War and and will be killed by Pat Garrett, uh, you know, in Fort Sumner in 1881. And how do you just abandon that? So I couldn't. And so the third and final book in the trilogy was called Sunset in Sumner. And Sunset and Sumner is where things started to get weird. Now, um, that book 
the shift uh, shifts away from Lincoln and obviously moves moves toward Fort Sumner. And there's a point in the book, a, what I would call a great tragedy, uh, but it's it's not the end. It's about halfway or a little past halfway into the book, and then after that is essentially how Martin's life, how Martin dealt with this tragedy in his life. And I'm not going to tell you what it is because I don't want to spoil it for those that haven't read it. But at after this tragedy, the only thing Martin, this this the main character, can do is write about it. And so he sets out to write these books called Back to Billy, 1877, and Sunset in Sumner. And so I, what I essentially did is I broke the fourth wall, right? They, they would, uh, that's what they would call in filmmaking, the fourth wall. Because if you're looking at a room on TV, you know, a, a TV uh, show, you see the three walls, but the fourth wall is where the viewer is. And so when somebody talks to the camera, talks to the audience directly, that's breaking the fourth wall. And that's what I did in these books. Not only did I break the fourth wall by having Martin write the books that I'd already written, but I had him make up an author so that he could deflect any criticism from himself. And he named that author Michael Anthony Judicici. So I essentially wrote myself into the book in this kind of circular pattern. And that was really supposed to be it. The three books were supposed to be it. But that's really, once I did that, that's where some strange things started happening. Now, here's my full disclosure. I don't believe in any of this. I am not a, a guy who believes in spirits or ghosts or the afterlife, or I don't believe in any of it. I'm pragmatic. I think when you die, they put you in the ground, you turn to dirt. I really do. But I can tell you there have been enough weird things happening here that at least I I wanted to capture them, and not and not just let them you know uh, float by. But I don't think there's anything more to it. But I'm going to tell you about some very strange stuff that started happening. So that third book is released. Um, I think it's summertime. I can't really remember anymore. Maybe uh, May June of last year, 2021. And as I had done with the other books, I had uh, taken them down to Fort Sumner to Billy's grave to take a picture in front. In that third book, I created a character called Gerald. And in a number of these books have real life people uh, that uh, I've turned into characters with their permission. And Gerald in that book is Gerald Klein, who's city councilor of Fort Sumner. And at that point worked for the Chamber of Commerce in the building right next to Billy's grave. Um, and so, uh, I wanted to bring a copy of the book to Gerald. I wanted to go get some pictures of all the books, you know, for, for promo shots up against the cage and the grave, um, that kind of thing. And so I made a day of it. I went there, I spent some time in Fort Sumner, and then I drove, uh, through Roswell to Lincoln and took some more pictures in Lincoln. I think it was Tiffany Owen from the, uh, the, uh, state uh, the Monuments Division, who was nice enough to take my picture up on the balcony of the courthouse. And I took some pictures elsewhere around town. And then I uh, made some uh, plans to go see my buddy, Steve Cedarwall, who many of you know. And Steve is also a character in the book, uh, most prominently in book number two at that point, 
but a little bit at the end of book number three as Steve from Capitan. Uh, and and Steve went on to have significant roles in, in books five and six. But I went to see Steve and give him a copy of the book and have him autograph some because there's some fans of his that wanted his autograph even more than mine as the author. So I'd spent the entire day in Billy the Kid Country and it's late afternoon and I'm driving away. And, uh, and I've got all this Billy the Kid stuff on my mind. And that's the mindset I've been in since six o'clock that morning when I left the house. I drive through the Valley of Fires. If you've never been to Lincoln County, the Valley of Fires is an old volcanic or volcano flow that uh, cuts the, uh, the land in half between Capitan and Carrizozo. And uh, it's referenced in the Young Guns 2 movies, most likely, I think. Um, but it's a real place. And it's very, very cool, kind of otherworldly looking. There's camping in there and there's trails and those kind of things. There's also a lot of rattlesnakes, so be careful. I'm driving through the Valley of Fires. I got the, you know, I'm doing 70 miles an hour in my truck. I got something on the radio, whatever it is. I'm not really sure. <clears throat> Don't remember. And up ahead, and there's there's no, I mean, this is not a heavily trafficked road, but there's no cars behind me. There's no cars driving in front of me. There's no no cars coming the other way. Up ahead, and I'm just on the, the western edge of the Valley of Fires, like on the Carrizozo side, something catches my eye. And it's on the other side of the road, and it and it's a person, except the person was it's hard to explain. They were kind of up on the rocks, but they didn't walk down. Or at least in, in my the way I could see them in my peripheral vision, nobody stepped down. This person just kind of was all of a sudden on the shoulder of the road. Now, I was close enough to see this, and I'm doing 70 miles an hour. And then this person proceeds to cross the road. But they seem to be walking really slowly, like barely moving their feet, kind of shuffling, yet they're moving quickly enough that they're completely across the road by the time they get there, and they have sat down on a rock on the side of the road and are sitting there watching my truck approach. So none of this really registered to me until after, you know, after I passed them. But it was just a strange, very like kind of uh uh, you know, uncomfortable, like, wait, wait a minute, what just, what just happened? As I get to that person, I see it's a young man. He's got, you know, messed up brownish hair, you know, kind of unkempt. His clothes are kind of unkempt. And I remember very distinctly, he had a, a shirt on that looked like it, it had some bright colors, like yellow and pink and orange and thing. Like it was almost made of patches. Like somebody sewed a bunch of stuff together to make it. And it was kind of blowing in the breeze. It was just, it, I, I don't know any other way to describe it. He had on the sunglasses that looked like, uh, almost like John Lennon glasses, but they were sunglasses. And those would be the kind, the, the type of sunglasses that you would have had available back in the 1800s. And as I drove by, the young man just sat on the rock which somehow he'd made it all the way across, found a place to sit, sat down, and just raised his right hand up to me to wave. Didn't smile, didn't frown, nothing, and I drove on by. Now, I'll tell you, it was probably some guy that I don't know what he would be doing. He's five miles from the nearest town in the middle of nowhere in some really inhospitable climate in the middle of summer. 
but it probably was. But he looked almost like uh, kind of somebody you'd pull out of like a Mad Max episode or something. Except as I passed by, I said, who in the hell was that? And the smile and the little smirk and the crooked teeth and the whole thing. I said, shit, that little guy looked like Billy the Kid. And I was only a mile up the road and I said, you know what? I should turn around. I should just go turn around, track that guy down and say, hey, who are you? What are you doing here? You know, what, what's going on? But then I thought, no, you know what? I, I don't believe in any of this anyway. And if it really was something, wouldn't it be cool to just leave it as this, you know, cool experience? And so I did. And I told some people about it. And there's people that believe in all of this kind of thing. And they, you know, oh, absolutely. You saw Billy the Kid's ghost and you were in there. You were down there the whole day. Of course, he was coming to you and talked to you. But this only happened after I wrote myself into my Billy the Kid series, my trilogy of books. Okay. Now, that was one thing. One thing. And if it was just that, you just go, you know, it's just a guy, dude. You get, you know, get over it. Um, I have a friend from uh, Wadsworth, England, named Mel, and she's a fan of the book series. It's been a great supporter of mine. And she's always asking questions on Facebook Messenger. What about this? How did this happen? What, you know, about the books. And so one day I was out shopping. I think it was probably a Saturday. I was going shopping, I was driving. And she was messaging some questions. And I remember saying, hey, could could I just call you on this thing on Messenger? Because I can't type. Like, I, I can't answer your questions right now. Yeah, so so I hit the dial button. And there we are talking through the wonders of, uh, you know, the internet. And as soon as, like literally, as soon as the uh, uh, the phone picked up, the song on the radio changed. And the song was... Billy the Kid by Billy Dean. Now, it's not a story about William H. Bonnie, Billy the Kid, but the song Billy the Kid came on the radio the second she picked up the phone. Weirdest damn thing. And I remember telling her, hey, guess what song has just, just come on? You're, you want to talk to me about Billy the Kid and the song Billy the Kid just came on. So I chalked that up to another coincidence, which I'm sure it was, and uh, moved on in life. In book number three, Martin spends time in Fort Sumner, and there's a, a, a what would be called a, uh, oh gosh, what are they called? Not a flock of uh, buzzards, a wake, a wake of buzzards that lives in the cemetery where Billy is buried. And they're very integral to the story, both in the past and present. But the first time Martin goes there, and he sneaks into the state monument so he can see where Billy was killed. Um these buzzards kind of follow him and one of them lands on his car and just stares at him. Won't leave even as Martin walks up. Um, later uh, in that same book, Martin is back at the cemetery, walks out of the office and there's a buzzard standing on the rail right there in front of him, staring at him almost as if, as if trying to communicate with him. Now, if you've been around buzzards, uh, they're very protective of their meals Right, so they eat dead things, uh, and so as a group, they'll you know they'll stick around and eat. But if someone approaches them, they'll scurry out of the way and then come back. Singular buzzards generally don't stick around people; they usually stay in in a group in a wake. So, I'm down at my little place in Texas, 
oh, a couple or three weeks later. And we've got buzzards that fly around in a big, you know, wake uh, over the lake. And they sometimes perch in the dead tree in the lot behind my house and uh, all those things. So I'm used to seeing them. But I uh, I have to take the, the trash out. You got to take it down to the dumpster, which is down by the boat ramp. So rather than, you know, go in the car, I put it in the boat, drive the boat down. And I get down there and son of a gun, there's a buzzard standing right there on the rail, just like in the books, staring at me. Now it's during the week. There's nobody else around. It's just me and the buzzard. And I get out and I think, well, this is weird. Like where the rest of the buzzards that are clearly trying to eat something that's here, except there's nothing to eat there. There's, there's no you know, animal carcass or anything like that. And the buzzard just stares at me as I walk up the, uh, up the, the, the plank, the gangway up, off the dock and literally I can stick out my left arm and I can almost grab this thing's beak before finally, finally, it just hops down off the rail. So it's about a foot further away from me, just like in the book. So I thought, gosh, this is really weird. I've never seen this. We've been down at the lake for six years now, seven, six years, maybe seven years. And I've never seen that kind of behavior, but I take the garbage, I throw it in the dumpster, I walk back and the buzzard follows me as I'm walking down the gangplank onto the floating dock again. And the buzzard stands right there by the rail, staring at me until I get in the boat and drive away. Again, total, absolute, positive coincidence, except these are the kind of things I wrote about in the book before they ever happened. So you can write all of those off. And I did. And then I started working on the next book and that was supposed to be over at a trilogy, but for some reason, as soon as I finished the third book, I, I, it was within a week. I thought, nah, something's not right here. Like I, there's something not said and this story is not complete, at least in my mind. And I'd carried the original story around in my brain for so long that uh, I, I, I said, okay, I'm just going to go with it. And so I started book number four in the trilogy, which became the running joke. And that one's called Bonnie and Teebs. And it really fills in a gap <clears throat> that is presented at the end of the third book, a gap of about 35 years. And it, you know, what happened to Martin, what happened to Billy during these times. Um, and that, uh, that book uh, came out. And again, almost as soon as I finished, I, I said, no, I'm not, I'm not done. <laughs> I'm not done. There's still something in my head. I'm still watching the movie playing. And I got, you know, I got a little bit more to tell here. And I knew by that point, it was going to be six books. I had finished four. I knew that what the next book was going to be. And then I knew the sixth final book, which is yet to be released, would finish it. <clears throat> so I started working on the fifth book, and just before it came out, I got another big, shocking coincidence. So in any of the books, if you'd go back in time to the 1877-78, Rosita Luna, the Belle of Lincoln, the most beautiful woman who's desperately in love with Martin Teeps, the great soulmate love of his life, although he doesn't seem to be able to stay in Lincoln to, you know, to take advantage of that, but... Uh, Every time that I wrote about her home, 
I wrote about two little huts, two little adobe huts side by side. And if you look at back at the books, you'll see that where I wrote about them is they sit on the road in Lincoln, just in front of where the modern day visitors center is, which is a real place. It's the, you know, museum and visitor centers, a little theater. And where the two huts sit today, there's a gray adobe building there that I, I assumed was a modern day building. It was built, you know, sometime more recently. And I didn't know what that building was. I never went inside, never looked at it. Uh, I've since found out it's now an art gallery that's managed by the state. And so in my mind, every time I write about Rosita's hut, Martin's going there, Rosita's going there, something's going on there. There's these two little brown adobe huts side by side, right on the street, right in front of where the visitor center is. And when I flash to modern day in the book or books, I talk about the fact that Martin sees this big gray adobe building and he feels sad because there's nothing left of Rosita's home where he'd had these, these incredible times he'd made love to her. He'd, you know, they, they'd uh, developed and deepened their relationship, but there's nothing left there. There's just this other building. And, and he imagines that the, the home, the, you know, her hut must've been, you know, must've fallen down or something. And then I go on Facebook and then I get the surprise of my life. So, um, scrolling through my Facebook timeline one day, and I see a post from, I think it's the Lincoln County Historical Society. And it shows that gray building that I've written about. In fact, I've just finished writing book number five. And I'm, and I, there's been a couple major scenes that happened right at that building that involved some of the key characters in the book right at that gray building that, that took the place of Rosita's house. And so I see the picture on Facebook and I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what they're writing about this. And I read the uh, description. I'll paraphrase it. I don't have it in front of me. But my, my blood kind of runs cold when I do. And it says, not many people know that this building, you know, is historic. It was built in the 1860s. And actually at one point, was two small homes side by side, two small adobe homes side by side. And I thought, you got to be shitting me. I've never seen that. I've never known that. Those, those, you know, it was always one big building. And what happened is somebody joined the two homes together. They just built a little addition over the middle to make it look like one big building. And then I read on to find out that the house, one of the houses is owned by, <laughs> or was owned by a family with the last name Luna. And in my book, I've got Rosita Luna living in the easternmost house of this little place that actually was two houses that I had no idea about. Really, really made me jump up and think. And so I, I tucked that away in my mental memory and think, okay, well, that's a really, really big coincidence because you wrote about something 50 times that historically actually was there in the exact same spot as where you said it was, but you never knew it. Where did that divine intervention come from? 
So I'm sitting writing book number six. This is uh, at least two months ago. And I, I like to talk to my buddy, Steve Cedarwall in the evening or text with him. Usually don't call him. And uh, Steve's a pretty good texter. I think he likes to speak into his phone. So it misses a word every now and again, but he's he's pretty good with it. And uh, I'm writing a scene in book number six where there's uh, just a, there's an iPhone that's kind of at the center of the plot. Where is it? Why, ha why has it been found now? And Steve from Capitan in the book as a detective has seen that this phone has been turned on after six months and he's going to track it down. Like it pinged a tower and now he's going to go find it because this is a mystery that he was involved in. And so I'm writing about Steve and, you know, I, I like to every once in a while send him a little, a chapter or a paragraph and go, Hey, here's where I am. You make sure that he's okay with it. And, uh, but I, I text him and I say, Hey, you're never going to guess what happened. And he says, you know, what happened? And I, I text him the story of this building there and how, you know, I'd written about it really accurately without knowing anything about the history of the building, including the name of the person that uh lived there and and by the way lest do you think oh well you know you probably knew there were some lunas in lincoln county i modeled rosita luna after just just the the thought of after a woman i used to work with in el paso texas named lourdes luna in fact i even named rosita's mother in the book lourdes i had no conception of any lunas in lincoln at you know historically that just wasn't on my radar but anyway so I tell Steve and he goes, wow, that's really weird, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. Has anything weird happened with you? Now, I haven't told him what I'm writing at the at that point. I haven't sent him anything. And he texted back and said, well, why in the hell would you ask me that? <laughs> and I said, well, I've had a few of these weird occurrences. And Steve says, no, everything's fine, except the last two nights. <laughs> I, and I, I kid you not. The last two nights at 1 a.m., my iPhone rings on the nightstand next to me, I pick it up, nobody's there. And in the morning, there is no record that anybody called. There's not a record of a phone call. And I said, you gotta be shitting me. Come on. He said, no, why? And that's when, and I sent him the, <laughs> the chapter I was working on that talked about him searching for this iPhone that had kind of come back to life after, you know, being, being uh, turned off for six months. So yet another one in the, in the weird, you know, kind of spooky bank. Um, about two weeks later, uh, I went down to Capitan and uh, had uh, lunch with my buddy, Brandon Dixon and met up with Steve and we were talking and, uh, and he said, hey, you know, I got a, I got a place in Lincoln. I, I wanted to see this house that he had. So he went down there and we're walking around. And I said, you know what? I got to walk down by this, by this building in front of the visitor center. I got, a, you know, the one I told you about. And he said, yeah, okay. I said, have you ever been in there? He said, no, never. So we walked down. There's no entrance fee for the art gallery. You go to the building behind. That's the visitor center. And we walk in there. And there was one woman who was walking out uh, and you walk in from behind the building, like not the street side. We walk in and you can clearly tell as soon as you walk in, oh, this is two separate buildings. And this place we're in was somebody just added a roof and some walls to close it in. But I can see that there was two separate houses here, just like I'd seen in my memory all that time. 
we step to the left, go down one or two steps into the art gallery, into what I have written to be Rosita Luna's house. And I told Steve, you got to leave. You got to leave me alone in here. This is too weird. It was exactly, I mean, to the placement of the doors, the windows, the fireplace, it was exactly like I had pictured in my head and had written about all of those times. And it was like way too much for me. I'm going to reiterate, I don't believe in any of this. I think it's all coincidence. But where did all of this information come from? I felt I could stand there at the front door and I could see Doc and Billy knocking on the window saying, hey, lover boy, come on. We got a we got a powwow in San Patricio and having Martin leave his great love. Like it was exact, the same color, the same floors, the same layout, every single thing. And it used to be two houses. Rosita lived in one and her mother lived in the one next door, at least in my books. Really, really strange coincidence. So I, uh, I told some people about it and they, some people believe it's, you know, you, you were there in some past life and some people believe that, you know, it's just a coincidence, get over it. So the following weekend, the, uh, I'm going to go for a run on Sunday, Sunday morning, the Eagles are playing. It's my team, even though they're out of the playoffs already. Uh, but this is not the playoffs, still the regular season. And uh, I, you know, I keep stalling and stalling and stalling. And finally, the game's going to come on. And I said, you know what? Uh, I told my wife, I said, I'm going to go now. I got, I got my my uh, Air AirPods, so I'm going to listen to the game. You know, I'll bring my phone uh, and I'll do my run as I put the AirPods on. And so she goes, oh, okay, great. So I figure the timing's perfect. I'll hear the kickoff, the whole thing. I put the AirPods in. I've got the phone with me and I've got my Apple Watch. Those are my devices. As soon as I put the AirPods in, a song is playing. Now I haven't turned anything on. Nothing's been turned on before that. And the song is Blaze of Glory by John Bon Jovi. Uh, if you don't know, that's the song from the Young Guns 2 soundtrack. You know, the, the title song. I didn't turn the song on. I don't have the song on my, on my, you know, in my uh, uh, iTunes or whatever you call it. And it's playing. And I said, wait, what the hell is that? It must be, you know, one of the radio apps that I use. So I said, well, let me turn it off on the phone here because I'm got to get the game. And so I go through the phone apps and there's no apps running <laughs> that have, that are playing anything. There's nothing there. I turn everything off and the music's still playing. So I said, son of a gun. So now I tap my Apple Watch like I'm doing right now. And I say, uh, okay, well, it must be playing from here. Nothing. There's nothing running on my Apple Watch that's playing any music. And still, and I've sh I shut all, you know, you swipe and shut the apps off. I've shut off every single app on the phone and on my watch. And the song's still playing. Now I'm starting to get freaked out. So I say to my wife, I say, hey, look. <laughs> I put one of these in your ear. I take one out of my ear and give it to her. As soon as I take it out with the AirPods, the music turns off. And so I think, oh, well, that's it. It's not going to come back on. But she puts the AirPod in her right ear and the song comes right back on. And she says, where's this playing from? And I said, I have not a clue. It's not playing from any of my devices. And I didn't turn it on. And she looked at me like, 
this is weird. You know, what have you, what have you got us into now? <laughs> and so she hands me back the thing and I, I think, all right, well, I'm just going to go with it. You know, like who knows what'll be next. I go outside, put the, uh, the other uh, AirPod back in my ear, the song stops, nothing else comes on, nothing. It's not like anything else was playing. The song was over and that was it. And then I turned the game on, on my serious app five minutes later or something. Very weird and strange. Now, I can't call that a coincidence because there's no coincidence there. I don't know where the song came from. I don't know who was playing it. I don't know who was playing DJ. I don't know how they hacked into my AirPods and played a you know song about a Billy the Kid movie in my ears. But that happened and my wife was right there, luckily and thankfully, to see that I'm not insane. I might be insane, but not about that. So I've got the sixth book finished. And I'm getting it ready for uh, typesetting, editing, etc. Which, which it's it's done now. It'll be printed shortly. And now I'm kind of hyper aware of these uh, these things that are going on. And but I'm not looking for them. At least I don't think I am. Maybe I am. But but I'm just open to anything. And nothing's nothing happens. Nothing. Nothing at all. The sixth book is done, and I think, and I just felt when I finished the book the first time, because the way the way I write, I write the entire book, then I go back, and as I reread it, I edit on the fly. But after the first time I finished the book, I wrote the ending, I knew that's the way it was going to end. The whole, this whole kind of, I don't know, spirit, this whole uh, drive just left. It was just gone, completely gone. There was no impetus for me to write another book or you know, there was nothing there at all. It was like the story knew it was done and it wasn't going to bother with me again. And that was that until last week. <laughs> so I start the uh, All Things Billy podcast. Thank you for listening, by the way. And by the way, if you think I'm nuts or you think I'm sane, you can email me at billythekidridesagain at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook at Michael Anthony Judasissi or follow the show on Twitter at BTK Rides. Follow, retweet, message, whatever. All right. So Brandon Dixon, my buddy who is the tour guide of the most dangerous street in America, says, hey, I think I can get you set up with Drew Gomber, who's the Billy the Kid guy. And he was on our last episode to interview him. And uh, Drew doesn't do that many interviews anymore. So if you want to do it, let's get it done. So I do. And you've heard that. If you haven't, just go back one episode and listen to Drew with all the kind of behind the scenes detailed knowledge of uh, Lincoln, Billy, etc. Well, we finish the interview up. We turn the microphones off. Brandon has to get going. He takes off. We've got a small crowd of people that are sitting and listening to us. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thanking Drew and telling him how much I enjoyed it. And we're talking a little bit about our history and all. And, uh, and I said, yeah, you know, I moved out here from New Jersey, uh, you know, 25, 26 years ago. And he said, oh, I'm from New Jersey originally. I said, no way. You're kidding. Where from? Drew Gomber is originally from Waldwick, New Jersey a tiny little town in the middle of, you know, you would never 
you drive through it and, and miss it if you blinked. Nice town, the exact same town that my main guy, Martin Teebs, is from. The guy that knows everything about Billy the Kid and the Lincoln County War and this, the town of Lincoln is from the town of the guy I created that now you know impacted everything in the Lincoln County War. That's a coincidence, and it's a huge one. But I was, my jaw was on the floor. In fact, I told him, I think I used some profanity. I said, you're effing kidding me. Like, in fact, Brandon was still there because I turned to Brandon and said, you set me up. You read that in the book and you told him to say that. And he goes, no, man, I had nothing to do with it. Like, I, and son of a gun, if Drew Gomber is not from the exact town of this made up guy that I created named Martin Teebs that's lived this incredibly crazy life through six books. And that should have been it, except Drew said, where are you from? And I said, well, I was born and raised in Palisades Park and a gentleman that was sitting off to the side in the middle of Lincoln, New Mexico, there's only six of us there, said, you're kidding. I'm from Palisades Park. I used to live there. And I said, come on. Like I'm looking for the candid camera now. Like to to go 2,000 miles away to Lincoln, New Mexico and find one guy who was born and raised in the in the town of a guy you made up and then have another guy there that was born and raised in the town where you were born and raised the odds are that it, it's got to be 400 million to one it's got to be that one 800 million to one 400 people times two guys i'll multiply it 800 million to one i should have bought a lottery ticket so i hope that that's it for the this strange occurrences because the the series is most definitely done and i don't uh i'm, I'm not going out looking for you know, i don't need billy the kid coming to talk to me in my sleep uh, i don't need uh you know martin teebs to you know come through time and take me back to 1878 like i don't i don't need any of that to go on i know there's some of you that would enjoy that. And maybe I would, I, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm, the curiosity would get the best of me, but I thought it was over when the last book was done. And then the interview with Drew brought it back again, just more and more coincidences around these books. And maybe it's just all in the world of Martin Teebs, salesman from Waldwick, New Jersey, <laughs> who became fascinated with the story of Billy the Kid from watching Young Guns, just like me. Read all the books he could find about Billy the Kid, just like me. Won two tickets at work by coming up with the safety slogan for his company's safety department, just like me. Like a lot of these things obviously were taken from my life. And now all of a sudden, all these things have come home to roost. So I don't know what to make of it, but I wanted to get it said and get it on the record and then get rid of it. If any of you can make sense of this, or if any of the people I've written in as characters have had other experiences, I'd like to hear about it. And there's been a number of people I've written in as characters in the book, starting with my buddy Scott Skurlock, who's the actual real-life great-grandson of Doc Skurlock. I wrote him in for a short uh, little scene at the end of book one. And at the end of the film, the screenplay that I've written, um, so that would be uh, one. But I've—I mean, I couldn't even go from memory. There's been so many people that I've written in. My buddy Warner Smith, up in Colorado. My friends Todd and Amanda Clark. 
uh, Gerald Klein from the uh, the uh, Fort Sumner Chamber, of course, Steve from Capitan, uh, another one that was uh, written in there, and uh, Brandon Dixon, Brandon the tour guide, he got written in there as well. Uh, I'm sure there's a bunch that I have missed, but I asked everybody's permission. But if if any of you have had any weird experiences based on me writing you into the story like I did to myself, well, I guess I'd love to hear about it. Add to my list here. All right. So what have we learned today that we can use going forward? Well, the first thing is we learned that a trilogy is supposed to have three books, not six, but Sometimes the author just can't, or some other driving force can't let the story be done until it's completely told. And uh, so at the book number six, which will be out in February, uh, February 18th is the target date, which is the anniversary of the date of uh, when John Tunstall was killed, which is very, very key in this book. Um, but uh, that book, Four Empty Graves, it absolutely completely completes the story. I'm not going back to it again. I've started another book on a completely different subject. This one's done and dusted. Um, so we've learned that, that a trilogy should be three books. We've learned that if you're going to write your friends into your books, uh, you might be writing them into some experiences that they weren't ready for, like Steve's phone ringing, uh, you know, one o'clock in the morning and nobody there and no record of the call. And who knows, maybe, maybe some other things happened to other people I wrote into the books. Um, uh, we have, uh, learned that, uh, Drew Gomber is from <laughs> Waldwick, New Jersey of all places. And, uh, the, the, at the height of coincidence there. And, uh, but most of all, I think we've learned that there's so much about Billy, the kid that people love to talk about. They cuss, discuss, they argue, they have opinions, they, they form bonds and they destroy bonds all based on their opinions of the kid, uh, on, uh, 14 July of this year, 2022, it will be 141 years since that fateful night in Fort Sumner when something happened. I mean, something happened that night. Um, but, uh, you know, your opinion of what happened is uh, important to you. So you you get to decide. Uh, 141 years. And for the last 141 years, people still like to talk about the kid. They still like to uh, give their opinions. They like to, to, to uh, propose theories. And uh, that's why He's the, you know, most well-known American outlaw, you know, save maybe for Jesse James, but, um, and Billy the Kid is known the world over. So I'm glad to play just a tiny little part in that with the podcast and with the books and uh, with the upcoming films. And the last thing I'll leave you with is uh, we've decided that the final trial of Billy the Kid feature film that we filmed and is in post-production now will be released on... 14 July, 2022, on the anniversary of that fateful night in Fort Sumner. The film will be done before then, but I think uh, it deserves a uh, a proper date to be released rather than just randomly whenever we, you know, some weekend when we decide. So uh, stay tuned to the podcast. We'll bring you some more uh, behind the scenes info on that, some interviews with the cast and... Um, Lots of other great stuff coming on All Things Billy. But until then, I'm your host, Michael Anthony Judasissi. Uh, please share the podcast with your friends. Check us out on YouTube. Subscribe. Do it all. I appreciate you. And uh, I'll talk to you next time.
Bye.